Well, I want to welcome now uh, Dr. Jerry Shepard to join me on the platform here. Many of us will be familiar with this, with this fine man, who is the uh, Professor Emeritus at, uh, of Old Testament Studies at Taylor University and Seminary. And uh, we're glad to have Jerry with us. As Tim had mentioned, there is a relation <laughs> between uh, Jerry and Tim. And so, you know, no, Jerry, when, uh, when the decision was made to put together a summer series on the Ten Commandments, it did not take long for me to realize that the best way to kick off this series is to have a professor of Old Testament studies come and, and explain and kind of set the foundation for us. And so I'm, I'm thrilled, as are others here, that you can come and be with us today and get us off to a great start with this new series. So thank you for being here. Thank you, Pastor Mark, and it is um, very good to be here with you uh, on this uh, first Sunday of July, and also to be here with you for a uh, communion service. Uh, very happy about that. Um, when Pastor Mark um, uh, contacted me about this, I was more than happy to do it, uh, but just keep in mind I'm doing double duty here, so I'm introducing the Ten Commandments, uh, as well as trying to say stuff about the First Commandment. Uh, so, um, you know, I teach on this stuff many, many hours in my classes, uh, but I have uh, managed to reduce it all down to one 90-minute sermon, and I hope that uh, you'll be uh, 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 comfortable with that. So, if for some reason I don't touch on something you think I should have touched on, Remember, I have a limited amount of time to work with. Now, the first thing that I just want to mention to you, I, 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 the first thing I'm going to do here is just introduce the Ten Commandments. Um, first thing I want you to know is they are never actually referred to in Scripture as the Ten Commandments. They're referred to as commandments, and they are also referred to as being ten, but never together. And so uh, in three places, Exodus 34, Deuteronomy 4, and Deuteronomy 10, they are referred to as the 10 words. And that word, word, uh, is full of different uh, connotations and nuances and meanings. Uh, but very definitely what is understood here is that these are words from God. Uh, 10 words for us as the first slide we looked at said, 10 words uh, to live by. And then there is something else that I want to do here, just in terms of looking at Old Testament law in general, but especially the Ten Commandments, and that is just to um, make a correction to a misperception. Sometimes you have heard that the Old Testament is law, and the New Testament is grace. But that really isn't quite correct because, in fact, the Ten Commandments are built on a foundation of grace. Notice what it says in Exodus 20 before God ever even gives the first commandment, before he ever gives the Israelites any laws at all. He says, I am the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Notice the order here. 
there are no commandments until the redemption of Israel is accomplished. You have the ten plagues. You have the victory over Pharaoh. You have the Red Sea crossing. You have them coming to Mount Sinai. And all of that takes place before there is ever a commandment or a law or a statute or a regulation given. The Ten Commandments and Old Testament law in general are built on a foundation of grace. Redemption first, law later. And even when we come to the idea of law, sometimes that word law can be a bit of a misperception as well. What we have in the Ten Commandments and the laws that God gave to the people was not a way to earn eternal life or to save themselves or to be redeemed. It was a way to maintain a proper relationship with a God who has already accomplished your redemption. And we have the same thing, of course, in the New Testament. There are three connections that the law has, or the Ten Commandments have, and I want to call your attention to those. First of all, there is the wisdom connection. In Deuteronomy 4, verses 5 through 8, notice the words that Moses speaks to the Israelites about the law. Here's what he says. See, I have taught you decrees and laws as the Lord my God commanded me, so that you may follow them in the land you are entering to take possession of it. Observe them carefully, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations, who will hear about all these decrees and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. So that's a very interesting way that Moses puts it. People will praise you. They will say how wise you are and how understanding you are, how smart you are, if you just pay attention and follow God's commands. It's not their fault. It's God's fault if they are praised as a wise and understanding people. And then it goes on to say, what other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to him. And what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws I am setting before you today? It may sound like Moses is praising the Israelites here, but actually the praise goes to the God who gave them the commandments. And when they keep these commandments and live according to them and play them out in their lives, what they are doing is bringing praise and honor and glory to Yahweh, their God. And then there's the theological connection. In essence, to know God's commandments is to know him. The great Old Testament scholar, Reverend Child, said this, The Ten Commandments are not to be seen simply as moral directives apart from the living authority of God himself 
who has made himself known. The Lord starts the Ten Commandments by saying, I am Yahweh. Yahweh is his name. That's the name he is called by in the Old Testament. The name he gave to Moses to tell the Israelites what his name was. He starts off by saying, I am Yahweh. And when you learn these commandments, when you obey them, when you practice them, you are coming more and more and more to know who I am. The Israelites know Yahweh through his commandments and through keeping them and performing them. And then, I just want to call attention, jumping ahead of here a bit, but there's also this Christological connection. Notice what Jesus said when he came to earth. In his very first recorded sermon in Matthew chapter 5, listen to what Jesus says. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. The law was not put to rest. It was not abrogated. It was not gotten rid of by the New Testament. It is still a foundation, a guide, an instruction for how we can live and how we can praise the Lord, how we can please the Lord. Again, that first slide, 10 words to live by. Okay, so that introduces the Ten Commandments in a more general way. Now we want to go and look at the first commandment. And the first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. Now, uh, one thing that I wanted to mention here before we get started in this too far, and that is, the second commandment is about making idols and worshiping them. And sometimes it's easy to take the first commandment and the second commandment and collapse them together as if they're really just one commandment. And I've heard sermons that do that. Uh, in essence, they preach on the first commandment and they preach on the second commandment and there's no real difference in the way they explain it. Well, but there is a difference. Now, I don't know who's preaching on the second commandment, uh, but I will check and see how they do on that next Sunday. But nevertheless, what I want to mention is this. The second commandment is about idolatry, but the idea of worshiping idols actually covers both commandments to a certain extent. So th um, the second commandment is about idols in particular, but we can also worship other gods by worshiping idols. So I'm going to bring that in a bit as we uh, explain this. So, the first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. And you've probably heard this all your life in sermons, that's the first commandment. But you know what? Um, Hebrew scholars like to make things more complicated than they might seem to be. And frankly, we're not exactly sure how to translate that first commandment. Literally, in the Hebrew it says, you shall have no other gods upon my face. 
That's what it says. Or you might say, you shall have no other gods near my face. And how you bring that over into English is a bit of a conundrum. So here are some of the possibilities. It may be that the commandment says, you will have no other gods in addition to me. One possibility is that that phrase, upon my face, is a way of saying, as long as I live. So that's a possibility. Then there's the traditional one, you shall have no other gods before me. It might mean no other gods in preference to me, or even the possibility of no other gods in opposition to me, that is, against my face. Or you shall have no other gods besides me. I don't know which one it really is. But what I suggest is all six of these things, don't do that. Okay, whatever it is, don't do it. Uh, don't have gods in addition to him, in opposition to him, in his presence. Don't take the glory that belongs to him and give it to any other god, any other deity. Now, here's one thing that I think is awfully important for us to understand about the first commandment, and that is the first commandment is not saying that there are no other gods. And so what's important for us is to make this distinction here between monotheism and monolatry. Now, monotheism is the idea that there is only one God. Sometimes you'll read in history books uh, or books about the Old Testament that the Israelites had this genius idea that there was only one God and that, that is the Israelite contribution to civilization. Well, frankly, the only genius the Israelites ever had was a genius for finding new and creative ways to rebel against God. So that's not their genius. However, even at that, monotheism was not their contribution. Their real contribution was monolatry. In other words, they lived in the ancient Near East among a people, among peoples who worshipped a host of gods, a plurality of gods. But what Yahweh says to his people here is, even though there are other gods, Chemosh, or Amon, or Atum, or whatever, even though there are other gods, there is only one God you are allowed to worship, and that's me, Yahweh says. There is only one God whom we are to worship. Now, just to reinforce this idea, let's look at a few passages in the Old Testament that give us this idea that there's only one God who is to be worshipped. In the Exodus, uh, Exodus 12 and verse 12, as the Lord is giving the instructions for celebrating the very first Passover, listen to what he says. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. Notice, he doesn't say these gods don't exist. What he says is, I am going to bring judgment on them. And then in Numbers 33, 4, it says there that 
looking back on the Exodus, it says, for the Lord did indeed bring judgment on their gods. So this is a very interesting thing in the Old Testament because to a certain extent, Israel participated in the mindset of the ancient Near East. Every country had their god or gods, and when they went to war against each other, it was not so much a matter of one people fighting another people, but it was one people saying, my God can beat up your God. Uh, you know, think back to when you were a kid. Did you ever said, say, my daddy is stronger than your daddy? Uh, my daddy can beat up your daddy. Well, that's kind of what's going on here. And so when Yahweh gives these commandments to the Israelites, it is his way of saying, I'm the only one you are to worship. Don't worship any other gods. As attractive as they may be, as powerful as they may seem, I am the one who is in charge of all the gods, and I will bring judgment on them. Exodus 15, 11, Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Psalm 95, 3, For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. And then, of course, we see here this idea. So it's all through the Old Testament. It's not that there's only one God and there are no other gods. Those other gods exist. However, there's only one God the Israelites are allowed to worship. Now, as you go through the rest of the Old Testament, there are some places where it actually says that those other gods don't exist. There is only one God. You alone are God. But you had to be careful with those because there's a bit of hyperbole in that. One of my favorite scenes, and I'm dating myself here big time, I think you probably all watched it, uh, Crocodile Dundee. Remember that scene where uh, Crocodile Dundee is out there with his, with his soon-to-be girlfriend, and these guys come up, and the guy pulls out a jackknife. Remember that scene? And Crocodile looks at it and says, that's not a knife. This is a knife. Well, that's what is happening there. When God is being praised for being the only God, it's not really a denial that the other gods don't exist. It's just saying in comparison to our God, they are nothing. And then we're also told here in this passage and many other passages that Yahweh is a jealous God. Exodus 25, uh, 20 verse 5 in this same Ten Commandments list, 34, 14, several passages in Deuteronomy, Joshua, Nahum, the Lord declares, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. That is, he wants his people to have an exclusive relationship with him. Now, here's what's so important to see about this, and that's this. In Exodus 19, listen to what the Lord says. He's saying this to the Israelites, again, before he ever gives them any laws. Here's what he says. If you obey me fully and keep my covenant... Then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. 
although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This is the very essence of God's covenant relationship. But the interesting thing is, there's a bit of a twist here. And the twist is this. The Israelites are to have no other God, but by the same token, Yahweh says, I will have no other people. You will be my treasured possession. So when the Israelites break these commandments, when they worship other gods and give their devotion and loyalty to other deities, they are violating not just their relationship to Yahweh, but their relationship to a God who has promised to be an exclusive relationship to them. And so that's what the first commandment is about. Now, how do we play this commandment out in our lives today? Well, when I was a boy, it was pretty common, and you may have heard the same thing, and I've even preached the same thing, uh, for which I will now apologize and, and uh, confess my sins. But you may have heard someone say something like this. Well, you know, we don't worship idols today. However, there are things that we can become so devoted to that they take their attention away from God and we can't end up having uh, divided loyalties. So maybe we don't have idols, but we might worship our cars. Or we might worship the idea of fame or wealth or riches. We might turn our, turn our um, jobs into idols, uh, our houses, our possessions, our family, our friends, our celebrities. We might worship food. We might worship books. And probably the latest idol out there, if you follow Facebook, is bacon. We might worship bacon. We might worship the limelight. So that is one way, I guess, we can say we can violate that commandment today. But what I want to press on you is that, frankly, when we say that, and, and, and it's not untrue, but it doesn't catch the depth of what we are doing. It's far more pernicious than that. It is possible for us today to worship other gods, false gods, false deities. So I want to run just a few passages of scripture by you to show how indeed it is possible for us to actually worship false gods, false deities today. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Paul here is talking about uh, food sacrifice to idols. Now Paul says some different things about food sacrifice to idols. And in some, at some points, he seems to suggest it's actually okay. If you're in a person's home and they offer you food that may have been sacrificed to an idol, but you don't actually know it, don't ask. Don't, 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 put your, don't try to embarrass your host. Just go ahead and eat what's put before you. However, Paul says, if you're going to eat something that you know is food sacrificed to an idol, you shouldn't do it. So here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, 
We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. Well, again, that's that hyperbole statement. But then he goes on to expand. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live, and there is but one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. In other words, Paul says, there are other gods. They aren't worthy of being called gods. But you should not even give any entertainment to the thought that you might give them worship as opposed to the one true God whom we serve. And then expanding on this, in, in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul brings this into the context of the Lord's Supper. Now, I think it's wonderful today as we look at this first commandment that we are also celebrating the Lord's Supper. Look at what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 10. Do I mean that food sacrificed to an idol is anything or that an idol is anything? No, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God, and I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Paul is talking here about Christians who want to have it both ways. On the one hand, they want to be Christians who celebrate God and his son Christ Jesus in his death for them on the cross by taking part in the Lord's Supper. And yet they also want to have the liberty, the freedom to worship their own old gods and food sacrificed idols. And Paul says you cannot do that. You cannot have that divided loyalty. To take part in the Lord's Supper while holding on to sin in your life, in your heart, is not only hypocrisy, it is an act of idolatry. It is to give your worship to a foreign god. And then notice again that last line. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? No doubt here. He's thinking back to what it says in Exodus. I am the Lord your God, and I am a jealous God. You shall worship no other gods. And then in Matthew 4, let's take a cue from Jesus. You have those temptations that Jesus goes through. And it says there, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Now, 
it's easy to put the emphasis in the wrong place here. The temptation for Jesus was not to get a kingdom. It was not to have power and authority. The temptation was to worship Satan, to worship the devil. And just to anticipate something I'm going to say later on, when we fixate on riches, fame, wealth, power, we are not simply craving things. To go that direction is indeed to worship another God. It's to take the worship that God alone deserves and give it to some other entity who is enticing us to worship him by enticing us through worldly things, riches, fame, wealth, power, authority. And then I want to look at a passage in the book of Romans, which I think is also very instructive for our particular day. Romans chapter 1, and we're going to read verses 21 to 27. It talks about the pagans here. And here's what it says. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened, and they claimed to be wise. They became fools, and now catch this, exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being, and birds, and animals, and reptiles. Catch that. When you worship foreign gods as opposed to the one true God, you're making an exchange. You're devaluing the God of the Bible and worshiping other gods. Paul goes on to say this, Therefore, God gave them over to sinful desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who was forever praised. So this exchange leads to another exchange. And we'll emphasize it on the next slide as well. But for right now, what are they doing? They're exchanging truth for a lie and the worship of created things, which would be anything in this universe other than God himself, worshiping created things rather than the creator himself. And then Paul goes on to say this. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. The question is asked, why does Paul seem to fixate on the whole area of same-sex sexual activity? Why does he focus on that in this passage? Because in some way, Paul says, this idea of same-sex sex is a mirror of what civilizations and societies do 
when they worship another god besides God. Paul focuses on same-sex sexual acts here precisely because they mirror the practice of idolatry. Same-sex sexual acts are a mirror of a society that has now begun to worship false gods. And that's why this is so important an issue for the Christian church today. We have to keep in mind that we who worship the one true God live in a society, in a world, in a so-called civilization which is basically idolatrous in its orientation and it plays out in the sins that are committed. Colossians 2.18, Paul says, Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. So notice, this is on this side of the cross. It's on this side of the resurrection, this side of the ascension, and Paul has to tell believers, don't worship angels. Idolatry is a real threat. 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 3 and 4, Paul says, Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. As we get nearer to the second coming, there will be a real threat from those who would set themselves up as gods and demand that we worship them. And then one last passage to look at. It's not on the slide. I'll just read it to you. But it's a very familiar passage. Revelation 13, verses 15 to 17. And Revelation, of course, is a, a book full of mysteries and imagery. Um, and there are all kinds of opinions. But I think Revelation had a fulfillment in ancient times. I think it is continually being fulfilled. I think there's going to be a future fulfillment as well. Listen to what author of Revelation says. The second beast was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. It also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads so they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. Now, I am not going to give you the definitive interpretation of this, of this passage or tell you what 666 means. Um, I think every single commentator has their own opinion, and if two commentators ever have the same opinion, it's because one copied the other. Nevertheless... I do know this much. I think we are coming to a time when there will be a real threat for Christians in the final days to be tempted to worship 
false gods, false deities, to worship idols because their very livelihood will depend on it. And if for some reason we can't train ourselves to worship God in times where there is freedom, how much less are we prepared to maintain that testimony when it comes down to our very existence, not even being able to buy or worship or sell. Finally, I want to emphasize where I think all this leads. Every temptation we face is an attempt to turn us away from the worship of the one true God and and to deter us from our calling to be fully devoted servants of the Lord our God and to entice us to worship other gods instead. Every time we sin, the sin is never really about the surface temptation, but about causing us to turn our backs on God and to rob him of the glory honor, and worship, which he so greatly deserves. I find it very interesting that one of the most beautiful books in the New Testament, the first epistle of John, ends with these words. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Why does he do that? Why does he end on that seemingly negative note. Well, I don't have it on the slide there, but just a couple of verses before John says this, listen to what he says. We know that we are the children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. So John tells his readers, be careful. Don't let the evil one entice you. Don't fall for those temptations. Don't succumb to those seemingly innocent things that might tempt you. Because even when you do that, you are giving your worship to the evil one, to a false god. So, My brothers and my sisters, I say to you and I say to myself, little children, let us keep ourselves from idols. Let's pray. Our God, our Father, you alone are God. You alone are the one who is greater than all the other gods. You are strong and mighty and wonderful You are powerful. You have all authority. And we owe you all our praise. And yet we also confess that it is all too easy to get us to follow other gods. Your servant, John Calvin, once said, our hearts are idol factories. And for some of us, I think our factories run 365, 24-7. Oh, Lord, 
forgive us for our sometimes very evident lack of devotion to you. You alone are God. May we worship you and never another. And especially in this world, which is apparently controlled to a large extent by the evil one, help us not give in to those temptations and worship you, for you alone are worthy of our praise. And now as we approach this Lord's Supper, I pray that you will also cause us to be quite introspective about whether or not we are indeed fully committed to you, our Lord and our God, the God who deserves our worship. We ask this through Christ our Lord.